Hi, I'm Perry. And I'm Brooke, and this is Double Take, and this is our first episode. We are going to be talking about education inequality. Um, We have both been really passionate about this issue for a long time now. Um, I know Perry did a research paper on this for school, and I did a couple presentations, and we're just really interested, and we also, um, we tutor at a, um, an elementary school in a low-income city, and it, it, we've seen firsthand stark differences between the education quality just 10, 15 minutes away, um, and this issue definitely does not get as much coverage as it really should get. Um, and it's scary to think that the new Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, and where she plans to take our education system, it, it's truly scary. Um, and we really wanted to have a good discussion about this issue. And, yeah. So, and also, what we both believe, and we both discuss this a lot, is that education is the solution to so many so problems we, you could have so many discussions about issues from mass incarceration to poverty to health care, and you can talk about them for hours, and we're going to do that in our later episodes, but so much of that comes down to education, education, I and truly believe, education. I truly believe it's the long-term solution to almost every political issue, almost every social justice issue, almost well, not necessarily social justice, but so many issues that plague the world, and we're going to talk mostly about the United States here, and access to education, equitability of education, the opportunity to get a good education is so important. So we're going to talk about the education inequality we see in in and have research in the United States, and particularly in Connecticut, because that's where we live, and it is interestingly the state that has the largest achievement gap so the difference between and wealth gap and wealth gap so we're going to talk about how that all correlates so i hope you stay tuned and it's going to be a really interesting episode so we are going to be talking today about the achievement gap as it relates to education inequality so the achievement gap is the gap um is basically defined as the difference in education achievement between the performance, between the like the lowest income to the non-lowest income students. So as of 2011, Connecticut has the largest achievement gap in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so that's just kind of defining the overarching um, term that we're going to be dealing with. And then it's also interesting in defining what the problem is to say why it's a problem. So I would like to kind of talk about how low income is correlated with low academic achievement. And that's so sad because that directly says we don't have an equitable system. We're not giving the same opportunities to low income students that we are to high income. And I think just in terms of just American ideals and what just most people believe in is that most people believe in equality of opportunity and making sure that everyone... I mean, not everyone's going to have the same advantages, but at least make it somewhat of a level playing field. You know, there's, as we're going to talk about, there's this stark difference between the opportunities available to some people and to other people, and often, often 
becomes this vicious cycle and it won't end until we do something about it. So let's talk about why this is a problem. So of course, low income is correlated to low academic achievement. So why, that's why in Connecticut, with having a large largest wealth gap, we also have the largest achievement gap. It makes sense. So you know, taking Connecticut, we live there, we know a lot about it. Connecticut has the wealthiest towns in the U.S. and the poorest, and it's really and you know you look at the stats and you see that the rich kids are getting the advantage in our education, which is ultimately like your foundation for the rest of your life. I mean, what careers you're gonna have and how much money you're gonna make. Exactly. And, yeah. and it's also an issue um, because of the way in which Connecticut schools are funded and well Connecticut and the way in which the schools is, yeah. across the nation are funded. And this doesn't really get talked about a lot because it's a state issue and a local issue. It's not a federal issue. So you don't see CNN talking about it too much. You don't see um, all like the um, national cable news networks because it's so specific to where you live. Um, so I know in Connecticut, um, the school districts rely on local property tax to fund its public schools. So if you take a, a wealthy towns like Greenwich yeah. and Westport and um, New Canaan, there's very high property taxes there because people have really Large, nice la- nice um, homes. So, of course, there's going to be so much more funding for the schools in those wealthy areas yeah. than if you take an inner city, like inner cities like Bridgeport and New Haven and Wyndham. So that's a really, really big problem, and I think – if you take a look at it, that's that's really the root of it. Yeah. How they're funded is a direct... I mean, it's not everything, but it's the quality of the teachers. It's how much they pay the teachers. It's the resources they get. It's um, it, it's just per, it's providing the extra help to students who um, maybe need a little more help learning. Yeah, and also something to note is that um, a solution to this problem is not necessarily just pouring money into schools. I mean, obviously that would help. But it's what the school does with that money. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have very much money at all. Yeah, no. Of I mean, course, what can but, you do? But money is because a school can um, oftentimes, you know, lower income schools that have low achievement. Um, also, their infrastructure is crumbling. Yeah. So say they get a, a money from the federal government or the state government, you know, as a grant or something like that. They sometimes will have to only spend it on their infrastructure, but that doesn't at all help the actual learning of the student. So I think, you know, that's just something to note. Yeah, and so another thing I want to point out as a cause of the large achievement gap and the inequality that we see in education in the United States is the lack of opportunity. So students who attend schools that fall lower on the spectrum yeah. of the, the education gap, also face inequality when, like, applying to colleges. And, yeah. no, that's not the cause of it, but when you don't okay. fund the schools correctly and you um, and you have low-income students all in one school and then high-income students in, all, in, in another, it creates this lack of opportunity for those students who get the bad end yeah. of, of the education you see in the, the United States um it's it's going to affect the rest of their lives and I think that's such an injustice it's truly it's just unfair when it comes down to it yeah and also when you look there's 
when I looked at, I know some statistics. So in 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 uh, two thousand nine, um, for high school graduation, the graduation for the rate for low income schools was sixty percent, mm-hmm. and that's just not good. Just over and half. Yeah, the students are graduating. And, and then in non low in low income areas, it was eighty six percent. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And I'm sure it's. I think it's higher now. Actually, I'm sure it's higher. That was in two thousand nine, and also, I, I mean, I read um. I read Jonathan Kozal's book, um, Savage Inequalities, and something I learned from that book was that just because students are graduating doesn't mean that they learned all the skills they need to learn to be able to be college or career ready. And, you know, some schools just pass kids because, uh, for whatever reason, but, so that doesn't even take into account the fact that if they're college or career ready, you know? And there's different qualities of the schools. Um, yeah. And then, so also I think, What's so important is, yeah, you can talk about this issue and define it and all this stuff, but what's the, the impact of yeah. it? And we're going to go into more, like, the historical um, kind of side of things of it, and yeah. the roots of this problem in the United States and also how it affects, how it's impact race and, and socioeconomic status and all that stuff. But just the basic impact of it is that state unemployment increases. Mm-hmm. If you don't give the people who are already low income, the opportunity to get an education, they're more likely to get unemployed. And that's just a burden on the economy and yeah. on the state. And and then so many conservative people say, you know, you have all these unemployed people relying on state funds and federal funds to survive. Well, give them a good education, yeah. then we can talk. So, yeah. and also incarceration rates increase so we can also talk about the school to prison pipeline pipeline. yeah and so okay that's an issue i think across the aisle we can all agree we don't want more people to be unemployed we don't want our mass incarceration to get worse um also an impact is it increases high school dropouts do we want kids to drop out of school no over a half a million dollars are lost in net fiscal lifetime benefits to the government when someone drops out of high school. Yeah. Think about that. It's, it's you know, a lot of people don't, I mean, I don't want to say all conservatives. It's some some people think of politics and, and financing and all that stuff in terms of, like, how they can save money and all that stuff. And you, I tend to more think about, like, the people impact. But if you are more persuaded by the figures and the facts and not the opportunity. This is pretty persuadable, I think. Do you yeah. want to lose money? No, let's let. I think investing in education is one of the most important investments and one of the most I, solid. Investments. I agree, and it's also all these things. It's all about disrupting the cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, it increases it, poverty as exactly. well. Exactly. So I, I, I also what I know and what I've learned from doing reading and research is that um, it's oftentimes the parents that motivate students um, to want to achieve higher and you know go to college and things like that and oftentimes um parents in low-income areas you know they're not home as much they're working a lot more hours and they didn't necessarily go to college or didn't necessarily finish high school um so if we create a generation of uh, of people achieving higher they're gonna become parents and they're gonna motivate Mm -hmm. their kids so it's this whole thing and also another problem kind of like shifting topics but within the same idea is that um 
the problem with teachers in these low-income schools that are very big and they're underfunded and things like that, um, a lot of teachers that just came out of school go to these low-income areas because they're going to get a job and things like that. Um, you know, but the, but the pay is not great. It's, they tend to be, you know, it's their first few years of teaching. Um, and once they can find those teachers, and it, these teachers tend to be very inexperienced, you know. So they're just out of school? Because they're just out of school and they, they haven't had, but it's interesting because it seems like you would need the most experienced people to mm-hmm. handle these kind of kids in this kind of environment with less resources and materials. Um, but once these teachers um, get a few years at these kind of schools, they obtain more experience. They can apply for jobs in other neighborhoods. Hiring and hiring, and they would they and there's higher pay, and they would obviously rather work there. So once teachers do become slightly experienced, they move away, and new, more inexperienced teachers mm-hmm. come in. So you know these schools are they're not getting the best teachers. They're not getting you know. So yeah, that's it's just it's a whole thing. Yeah. So. Well, also, just to note, um, just we're not going to be talking about Connecticut. Obviously, we know a lot about it. We live there. Um, but the three, let's just name the three um, states, the largest achievement gap is Connecticut, Maryland, and New Jersey. Um, and then the three lowest is Nevada, Wyoming, and North Dakota, just to give you a little sense. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, and... So I want to talk about, we talked about, like, the causes and the effects and of the problem. And I just want to talk about how no one's saying everything has to be equal. Like, equality yeah. is something that no one wants. True equality. True yeah. equality is something no one wants and also something that's impossible to achieve. Yeah. But we want equitability in opportunity. I think that's what... For me, I think that's what I think is the most important thing about the United States. I think we pride ourselves on how we're, we're equal opportunity. No, we're not. We don't provide equal opportunities. But I think if you give people, I think, equal, the equal opportunity, you're saying I'm giving you the resources to thrive. We're a capitalistic society. Yeah. You know, no, it's survival, the fittest, we yeah. get it. But if, but if you don't give people the same starting space. If you give yeah. someone a head start in life, that's where you're going to see problems. Yeah, and I think I think it's important to define equality versus equity. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I, I remember seeing this, like, really great graphic to explain mm-hmm. this because it's, it's kind of, it, it's a weird concept to explain, but equality essentially means sameness mm-hmm. and equity means fairness. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we want. We want fair. We want to be fair. We want to be just. I mean, you if know? you don't want things to be fair, we gotta have a talk <laughs> because I don't know I don't what know that's about. But like, no one wants everyone to have the same, and like, equality is an impossible and thing. Also, that's a utopian t- society. And, and just to apply it to education, say the federal government um, is gonna help out districts. Equality would mean that they give the same amount of money to high income, high achieving schools yeah. than they would give to to low income low income, low achieving schools. I mean it's systemic no. discrimination it is. of wealth. It is. And children of economic economically disadvantaged families have less access to like good teachers, tutoring, yeah. social workers, yeah. special education teachers, technology. And those are the things that allow kids to thrive. And 
that directly affects the graduation rate, that directly affects incarceration, that directly affects poverty, and like, and I read a statistic that says that students who finish high school and earn a higher education degree earn twice as much as students who drop down high school and are statistically much less likely to be unemployed. So I, I just don't understand like how like this is not an issue where like, okay, let's address this because if we want to address mass incarceration, if we want to address poverty, education. let's address education because that's the start of it all. So I just wanted to interject in the middle of our podcast to promote um, an organization called Educare. Um, and I'm just going to read from their um, about statement. As one of the nation's most effective early childhood education schools, Educare is creating bright futures for thousands of low-income young children and families. Our schools provide children from birth to age five with quality early education, support families, arm teachers with effective teaching practices, and share research to elevate early learning nationwide. And what I like so much about Educare is that it really um, addresses the importance of early childhood education and this whole, um, you know, issue of education inequality and um, how just getting education um, uh, from birth until age five, as the organization addresses, it really makes a world of a difference. So. Um, what I did was I um, emailed um, someone as, from part of the charity and asked what I can do to help fund a school in a low-income area near me, um, and you all can do that too. So now we want to talk about um, how did it get so bad? You know, what are the roots of this? So obviously. Um, you know, one of the most important Supreme Court decisions was Brown versus Board of Education. Um, that was decided in 1954. Um, it decided in, in a unanimous decision that um, a separate but equal, um, you know, doctrine, um, which was, you know, it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, you know, so, um, and this overturned the precedent set by Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, and I think it, it truly changed the social fabric of our country. Yeah. It did, and it was a monumental case, mm-hmm. and I think landmark decision and, and hands that's down. so much more than education, but, I mean. But when you think about it, the legacy of Brown, it was a broken promise. It really was. And I think, you know, what we remember and what we're taught about Brown is that it desegregated schools. Yeah. That's not... But I... We attend a segregated school. I can... I I can... I tutor at a segregated school. And they're very different. And it's... It's truly a broken promise because... Yes, it's not constitutional to segregate schools, but... It happens. When you discriminate, as we were talking about before, with the property tax... Yeah by socioeconomic status and your wealth that inherently disadvantages a racial issue. minorities. And that's when you have this problem. So, but now we're, we're, so why was it a broken promise? How did it get this way? So from doing research, you know, I, I think something that we don't necessarily always learn about in school is the Brown 2 decision. 
mm-hmm. um, which was decided in 1955, which was meant to set the parameters. Which I how, think is the reason why it's a broken promise. Yeah, so it sets the parameters for how the Brown 1 decision would be implemented because it was such a groundbreaking decision that they needed to decide how it would actually pan out. And there out. was the great resistance of it. Yeah. Um, the mass resistance of it. And and then, so there was another Supreme Court because people were like, what the hell do we do? Yeah. Like, how do we do this? And so you can yeah. explain. So speaking for another unanimous court in this Brown 2 decision, it was um, Chief Justice Warren. He wrote that um, the states must be in full compliance with the Brown 1 decision with all deliberate speed. And those three words changed everything. Or four words. Oh my god. Four words. All deliberate speed. Yeah. With the three words. With all deliberate speed. Okay. Fine. Fine. Okay, whatever. whatever. Um, So... You know, by all accounts, this, this meant slow. So this would, uh, you know, schools would be segregated slowly. And you know, I can firmly say that it's 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 a still slow process, it's and it's still going over on. Ha- um, half a um a century and skills, yeah, skills <laughs> over half a century. And you know what? Like, so basically, like the court was like, yeah, like desegregate schools on your own time. But it's interesting. Do it, when it, you like. It basically. meant to set the parameters for it, but. That's such an abstract statement, and yet that it had being so much, years. It had so much power because we're still in a state where, uh, like, we're in, it's just we're still not desegregated, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's terrible. And what's interesting is that um, you would think with like the, you know, the changing composition of the Supreme Court after that decision, you know, um, the lawyer that argued the case, um, um. Thurgood Marshall, um, he was the first African American to sit on the Supreme Court, so mm-hmm. he and he was on the Supreme Court. But the problem was that there was a lot of um, conservative courts following the Warren Court that um, you know made him have to be a dissenting minority voice always, mm-hmm. con- especially concerning race and school policy. So it's so sad that he wasn't able to do more. Mm-hmm. You know, he. So. I mean, like the whole thing about our country is yeah. this democracy thing you know it's, it's great it's great <laughs> we love it but um but that's i mean majority wins yeah well i don't know about that yeah well yeah you know, whatever <laughs> but no but um, yeah something about 2016 um you know whatever we'll talk about that later but his his voice was diluted by the conservative yeah. members of court so let's talk about like other decisions that yeah. are so lesser known but actually very impact yeah. everything so, so do you want to like start off by yeah, the decision that you know so um in this case it's called um san antonio independent school district v rodriguez and that was decided in 1973 so that was one of the first major setbacks the brown decision so like what did that what did that say? Yeah, no, so in a 5-4 decision, the court held that the Texas system mm-hmm. of financing schools primarily through property tax, you know, we discussed that before. Interesting, yeah. Did not violate the equal protection clause. Oh, wait, let me say, that's not equal if you're doing it through property tax. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, hey, we have that today. I know. So, like, clearly it's making an impact. And I, like, and I discussed that as, like, one of the causes of yeah. this huge, um, Education inequality. And this that case, we, that we, it, this case yeah. created 
nobody knows about this, but it created the formula that has widened the achievement gap in education and inequality that we see today. Oh, like, did you know? So basically, um, Connecticut, because uh, I know about Connecticut, so they have this school um, financing algorithm, um, and it's super, super confusing, but it, like, basically, like, it's, like, this series of, like, different algorithms through poverty tax that, like, that funds the, the school, how they, yeah. and it, over the past, it, it, they implemented, like, three decades ago, basically, and the formula, like, has been changed and augmented so many times yeah. that it actually, like, aggravates, like, the problem was trying to solve, it was, it was, like, good intentioned, I yeah, think, like, but the I don't know about other states, but the way we finance it with property tax and all that stuff, it like in the formula, I don't understand the whole formula. I'm not a math person, whatever. But I think that's interesting that like a problem that like we addressed earlier and like that we're gonna address later is like impacted by this yeah. court decision that it's not even taught really in school. Yeah. Like this was this, like I mean I had never heard it yeah. after doing like deep research yeah. into education inequality like I had never heard yeah. of that decision Case. yeah that's scary and that yeah so and just something to note it, it because of this funding schools for property mm-hmm. tax um there is a six thousand dollar per pupil expenditure difference between Westport and Bridgeport public schools so there's yeah. more, so Westport Public Schools spends six thousand dollars more on students than Bridgeport students. Like that's significant. That's mm-hmm. it's super significant. So like I mean, it's just saying like there the Bridgeport Public School system is unable to invest in their students, and also that is directly tied to like tax paying and like yeah. through property tax. So taxpayers in Westport wealthy town in Connecticut contribute over $15,000 more to their local public school than Bridgeport taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So like, that's ridiculous. And like, and then that directly relates to how much money you're spending per pupil, which is like a good measurement of like how much they're investing in general. It's crazy because just the ideals of Brown were just Mm -hmm. totally cast aside by this. Yeah. I mean, it's Brown made it less systemic in terms of like, but black people go to this school, white people to go to this school. Well, no, not systemic. It made it less like segregated it's by not du- race. It's not du jour. It's not du jour. It's, it's yeah. Rate like discrimination. discrimination. Yeah. It's systematically through money, basically yeah. screwing over minorities yeah. and low income people. Well, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Um, so, in another case, um, that was in the following year, in 1974, the Supreme Court held, um, in the case Milliken v. Bradley. Oh, that's a bad one. Yeah. Um, it's actually, one. it's often referred to as one of the worst Supreme Court decisions. But also, like, so many people don't know it. <laughs> and we've had a lot of, there have been a lot of bad Supreme Court decisions. Mm-hmm. Same, same, whatever. So, um, so, oh, so it decided that after... So after um, being charged with having segregated school system, the Detroit public schools um, were ordered for a multi-district desegregation plan. So that meant that many di- districts had to be desegregated and, you know, combined and integrated. And, integrated and mm-hmm. you know, so they kind of had to 
redesign that. Mm-hmm. So, and I personally think that's a pretty good plan. Um, so, I, despite that being kind of perfectly adequate, um, the Supreme Court held that the multi-district plan was, quote, wholly impermissible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just the hope of full integration and, you know, that whole thing, I mean, that, that's just... Oh, it's crushed. It's, it's crushed, truly, so... That's really interesting. Yeah. So, like, we're feeling the effects of those decisions today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because we're taught about Brown and we're taught about how great it is. You know, I it love Brown. Great, yeah. Great decision. Fully agree with it. But then, like, we don't learn that, like, so we think, like, oh, yeah, schools are desegregated. Yay. But then, like, what you don't learn is that, like, these just other decisions like San Antonio, Milliken, Valley, yeah. the they have reversed the effects and like I go to school, I look around and most of are white. Everyone's white. Everyone mostly everyone is very wealthy. So like what does that is that integrated? I don't that's not integrated. Yeah. So you know, as we're going through the timeline of, you know, cases that strip away mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Education, we, you know, you transition from the Burger to the Rehnquist Court. Um, and the Rehnquist Court became even more conservative, especially on the desegregation efforts. Mm-hmm. So in 1991, in a case called the Board of Education of Oklahoma City v. Double, the court deemed that the efforts in Oklahoma City to desegregate had been achieved and it could and it could insolve um, their injunction because a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of after Brown versus Board of Education, a lot of schools mm-hmm. were um, ha- were given an injunction and mm-hmm. mandated to desegregate mm-hmm. by the courts. Um, but this decision, Supreme Court, allowed it to, to dissolve mm-hmm. um, after a certain period of time. So it, this case kind of gave. Um, every desegregation resistant school a loophole that like to me that sounds like you know the decision like Shelby County v. Holder yeah. that like, sounds like similar but with like voting rights but anyway so, so for a short period of time schools would desegregate just to fulfill their mandate mm-hmm. and whatever and be like legally and then they would resegregate and then but after the injunction was dissolved you mm-hmm. know as in this case we could go back to segregated classrooms yeah. and that's the law mm-hmm it's, it's and insane. like, and that's and, and 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 like again, like I feel like I've been saying this so much, but like you literally see it. It's not like some abstract idea. Like I go to school every day and I see it. We tutor at a school and I see it, and it's it's an injustice. Yes. And you know, there's so many studies. Like if you just want to get down to like the psychology of it all, like there's so many studies that say how important diversity is mm-hmm. for students and like. And, and, no, and, oh, so just to interject, like, you know, the whole thing with, like, affirmative action in, in universities is, mm-hmm. like, the court deemed that it's it, it's it's a governmental interest yeah. to have a diverse student body. Mm-hmm. Why does that apply to public schools? Yeah. I don't, yeah. Why does it only apply to upper, higher education, I mean? It's in our interest to be around people that look different than us, sound different than you know, are different than us. But, so, but why does... I mean, that's just, like, even one part of it, and then, like... And then you just have it disadvantaging, like, 
Yeah. It's like even integrating and then you're disadvantaging low-income people. So you're basically like raising the people up in society who already have the advantage. Widening the gap. And then you're pushing down the people who have been systematically disadvantaged for all of American history. So, like, if you just create this image, it's a podcast, so we can't show anything, but, like, just create this, like, imagery of just, like, someone going up and another going down, and it's just, like, that's the gap. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it's it's sad and it's sickening to, like, to even think about that, like, people, when you're born into a low-income family, your prospects in life, because of the education education you will receive yeah. is just we lower that. we need to change that yeah so in my next kind of point of research and just understanding this issue i really want to see the effects that these court cases had on individual school districts because i know my experience in school mm-hmm. and but that's not you know that's not the full picture obviously um so i did some research and i found the story of um central high school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and it really demonstrates the, the pernicious ramifications of these cases and the all-deliberate speed decision in mm-hmm. round two. So um, Tuscaloosa, it, it was called like a brown success story because after a judge ordered the merger of two high schools in 1975, so, so, so oh, sorry, 79, so it, one school was predominantly white, or just all white, for a matter of fact, all white and one was all black or minority. Um, and these schools merged to become one central high school. So by all accounts, these schools were integrated and thriving. So, but in 2009, however, a judge released Tuscaloosa from the court-ordered desegregation mandate. So we were talking about that in um, that Oklahoma case. So the mandate was dissolved. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, at all mean, that they can desegregate. Or segregate again, I mean, sorry. But that's what happened. The school went back in time, mm-hmm. basically. So Central High School split up into three smaller schools, and the districts were gerrymandered, and Central High School became 99% black because the white students went to go to a different school to make it, you know, to have mm-hmm. And that whole thing, whatever. So... In Tuscaloosa today, one in three black students attend schools that look like Brown or the Board of Education never happened. That's so scary. It's, I mean, I think like, like that's like, I mean, talking about like race in education, like, it, I mean, it doesn't really get worse when you think about it. And if you look at that, like the achievement of that school as compared to the white, the white I'm school, sure, I don't know the statistics, but I'm sure it's not. It's and it, like the system of education that we have today allows for this. Yeah. Like, just think about like our government is allowing this to happen, and nothing's being done about it. So, I think we were talking about this before, but I think it's really important to bring this back. Is why does it even matter that we have integrated schools? Mm-hmm. And I think something that I always think about this quote that um, 
Justice Thurgood Marshall said in his dissenting opinion in Milliken v. Bradley, which was a case we talked about previously, he said that, quote, unless our children begin to learn together, there was little hope that our people will ever learn to love together. It's mm, a really good one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, for me, that just brings home, like, the importance of it. Um, yeah, so, well, I also, so, like, we've been talking about this issue, and I feel like we've kind of driven home. Um, oh, ooh, something I, I want to add. Oh, <laughs> is that... Um, something about the Brown decision, and I think a lot, a lot of people know this, but um, I'm part of Arden's case case for Brown versus Board of Education. Mar- Marshall um, brought in this man named Dr. Clark to testify in regards to his famous doll test, um, which proved that prejudice, discrimination, and segregation creates feelings of inferi- inferi- inferiority among African-American children. So, I remember watching that video. That if you if you get a chance, watch the video of mm-hmm. the dog test. It is it's the saddest thing. And I actually watch videos of um, cable news networks doing, doing it again, doing yeah. it again now, and it's scarily similar results. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and we were talking about before how for affirmative action stuff like in college and universities, there it was. It's in our. It's the governmental interest to have diversity in schools. And in affirmative action cases like Butter v. Bollinger, it's, they've proven that it's compelling state interest to have a diverse student body. So I, I don't get why those benefits can't not be enjoyed in public schools and also mm-hmm. just in part in solving these gaps. I mean, I think it all comes down to because everything comes down to money. Money, of course. Um. But, like, we talked all about this and, like, the history of it and now, like, the current stats about it and why education inequality and the achievement gap is such a big issue. But I always hate to, like, talk about something and really, like, delve into an issue and not say, like, okay, like, what can we do about it? Mm-hmm. And education inequality is not something or, like, a far-off topic that we we, leave, we, can, leave, we can just leave to the politicians and leave to the senators and yeah. the congressmen. I think it's, like... It's, I, I mean, I've done research on it, like, it's an issue that, like, the individual person can really do something, and, like, everyone, yeah. mostly everyone lives near school, so I did a lot of research, and, like, I'm just gonna kind of go through it, like, tutoring and mentoring, which we do, we tutor at a um, lower-achieving school, yeah. drastically helps um, there was a study done. And it also brings awareness to yourself. To yourself, which I think is so important. And there was a study done that says that um, when in- implementing a, tu- a tutoring and mentoring program um, in um, a school district, um, 52% of students skip school less, 48% of students improve their grades, and 62% of students improve their self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So I think – and and – so if you're improving the school environment, that I'm not saying that drastically improves the systemic like yeah. financial disadvantages and all that, but I think like that's something an individual can do, and like so many schools have 
especially um, lower income schools, have um, after school programs, which we are part of for tutoring. Um, and just go in there and like, you know, we encountered fifth graders who, who had a hard time doing five plus five and like, it, it, it's just like, it's really and heartbreaking. It's, it's a hard, also to learn, to be with these students and learn about their backstories and mm-hmm. like, just the horrible things they faced. Yeah. Their first, I, I do the first graders, like, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I, I think the love of learning is really stripped away when you have such large classrooms, overcrowded schools, schools that, like, don't have the resources to teach the kids, you're gonna, like, you're stripping those kids of their, like, love of, like, their possible love of learning, and and it really breaks my heart, and, like, another thing that schools can do, you know, I think this is, like, a very, um, controversial thing, but, like, a lot of things, um, schools have been implementing vocational learning, Programs for students, a lot of students, um, especially if um, they already, like, you know, their parents are in a certain industry and they know they're going to be entering it, um, to have that instead of, you know, some students feel that, like, taking a literature class, I mean, I would definitely disagree, but they don't think that's in their interest, and so, you know, they slack off in their education, all that stuff, so vocational learning could help the achievement and gap. And make it feel more applicable. And fe- Yeah, so, I mean... These solutions don't help the foundational, like, financial, like, discrimination and the general education inequality, but it can help improve it with what they already have, basically. Um, And then, you know, these kind of sound, I mean, a, a lot of people say, like, oh, like, here's some cheesy things you can do to help, but, like, honestly, book drives. They don't have a lot of low income, low income schools don't have the resources to buy books for their students. It is so easy. Like I have so many books laying around my house that I don't use or for younger kids. Donate your books. Fundraise. Um, you know it's a really good thing to donate to public schools. I know Chance the Rapper. Um, yeah. he actually donates a lot of what he makes to Chicago public schools. Yeah. And, like, you're not doing, like, it might be weird to be, like, oh, you're not donating to an advocacy organization, you're not donating to this, but, like, donating directly yeah. to the school, like, that's... You know you you're can, impacting individual lives. I mean, lives. that's awesome. And I also, and School Week Tutor, Ad, I know they, you're doing a dance performance, they didn't have costumes. And mm-hmm. that's just a little thing, just donating costumes. I know, it just, it's just the little things that mm-hmm. really, just on an individual level... Yeah make a big difference and then another thing is not necessarily helping the situation but advocacy like educating others educating yourself on this issue we have this platform of social media use it it's pretty great (laughs) it's pretty great tell people about this issue i mean it literally faces every single person in this country everyone goes to school everyone's affected by it and also even if you don't have children go to school you don't go to school Everyone pays taxes. Your taxes are going mm-hmm. to funding public schools. Make it worth it. I you think know? there's no more important issue to invest yeah. in. I I truly believe that. I mean, there's so many issues in this country. Invest in education. So, I just something that kind of motivated me to like take a look at my own situation and then just put things in perspective. And especially learning about um, 
I remember learning about Brown versus Board of Education when I was younger, and just this, you know, I kind of realized, like, I look at my own school, and my school reflects the failure mm-hmm. of Brown Board of Education. Just look at your own school and think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know the answers, of course, to this, but just like making yourself aware is so important. So, I think we're gonna thank you for listening to our first episode of Double Take. Next week, we will be discussing prosecutors, prosecutor elections, and the criminal justice system. So, um, stay tuned for next week. Thank you.